Will you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Matthew? In Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin our reading in verse 30, and we'll read through verse 46. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers. And its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that we confessed today when we were confessing the Apostles' Creed was that phrase that Jesus descended into hell. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, as it is commenting on the Creed and reflecting on it and walking us through it, it asks this question... Why does the creed add that phrase? Why does it add, he descended into hell? That is to say, why didn't the creed just say that he was crucified, dead, and buried? Why did it go on? 
And the beautiful answer that it gives is this. It adds that phrase to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. It adds it for us to give us assurance in our deepest hours of dread and torment. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism adds the word uh, to on the cross, but also earlier. We often think of the hellish torment that Jesus endured on the cross. We don't often think of it earlier. But I think nowhere in the Gospels do we see that earlier anguish of soul and terror than we see here on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus confesses that his soul is very sorrowful even unto death. This deep anguish and sorrow had long been prophesied of our Savior. Isaiah wrote those words that we are familiar with, that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows and that he was acquainted with grief, and that we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I don't think there could be a more fitting place for this striking and crushing of our Savior to begin than here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane is made up of two Hebrew words. The word for an oil press and the word for oil. And during this time and in this garden, great stone slabs would be pressed down upon crushed olives, the weight of those slabs squeezing out the fleshy pulp until every last drop of oil might be collected. And I think that is a fitting picture of the sort of soul-crushing agony that Jesus is experiencing here not under the weight of stones, but under the weight of betrayal, under the weight of abandonment, under the weight of his impending death, under the weight of the sins of the world, but most importantly of all, under the weight of the just wrath of God. Like oil from the press, his sweat would fall here like great drops of blood to the ground, And Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Old Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, Here it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to crush him, that fresh oil might flow to all believers from him, that we might partake of the root and the fatness of that good olive. Well, as we consider this particularly crushing account of the man of sorrows, let me give you three points today to help organize your thinking. First, we're going to look at the striking of the shepherd in verses 30 through 35 as Jesus interprets Zechariah's prophecy and predicts the abandonment and denial of his disciples, the striking of the shepherd. Secondly, uh, we're going to consider the sorrows of the shepherd as Jesus confesses in verses 36 through 38 
of the deep grief and the anxiety that he feels under the weight of his mission. And then finally, we're going to consider the submission of the shepherd in verses 39 through 46. As Jesus, through prayer, submits himself to the will of his Father and finds the strength and resolve to drink from that bitter cup. The striking of the shepherd, the sorrows of the shepherd, and the submission of the shepherd. And as we begin to look together at this passage, let's remember that Jesus has just finished sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, where he took that old ritual and reinterpreted it and transformed it and extended it as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Self-conscious that he was the Passover lamb, that the bread of affliction was his body, that the cup of the covenant of wine was his blood. And now when they have finished singing a hymn together, uh, traditionally that would have been the great Hallel. The Great Hallel is a series of psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, songs that are particularly connected with the Exodus deliverance, songs that are connected with the steadfast love of God. They would have been singing on their way to the garden of how the cornerstone would be rejected, and yet of how God's steadfast love would endure. Somewhat surprisingly, Jesus takes them out after the supper and begins to lead them to the Mount of Olives. You might remember that the Passover begins at sunset, right? It's at sunset when that slaughter of all the lambs takes place, so that by the time they would have finished this meal, even a meal eaten in haste as the Passover was, it's definitely dark and it's getting late. And yet here, Jesus leads them out to the Mount of Olives. He leads them to that fateful garden. But it was not fate that was leading them. As if there were such a thing. It was the faithful Savior who was leading them to this place. Who was causing all of these things to fall out according to his purposes. And as they go... Jesus begins to predict what is going to transpire that very night as he invokes a somewhat obscure passage from the prophet Zechariah. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now let me just say a few things about this. Uh, First, Just notice how Jesus himself reads the Old Testament Christocentrically. He reads the Old Testament as it is about him. He understands that the Old Testament prophets were speaking about him, that they were a witness to his life and ministry, which incidentally is a pretty good reason for us to read the scriptures in the same way. We should read the Old Testament in such a way that it is a witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies himself as this shepherd who will be struck so that the sheep will be scattered. It's, of course, not the first time that Jesus has identified himself as the shepherd of Israel, is it? He's said to his disciples already, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, 
But here, as he quotes from Zechariah, he brings a, a new measure of understanding to these events that are about to unfold. Because on the one hand, the very sheep that the shepherd gives his life for are the sheep who scatter from him. Uh, what the ESV translates as fall away is the Greek word skandalizo. It's the word that we get our English words scandal and scandalize from. Uh, the word means to treat somebody in a shockingly offensive way. And Jesus says to his disciples, you are going to treat me in this shockingly offensive way tonight. Because tonight, in my hour of greatest need, you are not going to be there. You are all going to scatter. You will all abandon me. In the very hour when I am being struck, you will leave me alone. And so on the one hand, Jesus helps us to understand the scandalous nature of this thing from a human perspective. But on the other hand, I think he, he helps us to understand the scandal of the cross from a theological perspective. And it's not in what Jesus says, but in what he leaves out from this quotation. The text of Zechariah says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against my fellow who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In the text of Zechariah, it is the Lord speaking. It is the Lord who calls his sword of wrath to come down on the head of his fellow, his companion, the one who stands next to him. It is the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. And I think that as we see both sides of this, in this one quote, we begin to feel the horror of what Jesus knows is coming for him that night. The crushing blow of being abandoned by the very ones he's giving his life for, and the crushing blow from the very one he's giving his life to. And yet, even as he says this, he goes on with what I think is another allusion to Zechariah's prophecy but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. We'll have much to say about that in the weeks to come, about how Galilee becomes a place of resurrection witness. But for now, I just want to point out this one thing, that Jesus says he's going to go before them to Galilee. And I don't think the point of that is to say he's going to get there first. I think the point is that, like a shepherd, he is going to go out before them. Like a shepherd goes before his sheep, uh, he will tell the women at the tomb to go and tell his disciples, to tell them that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. And I just think it's beautiful that in spite of their treatment of him, his promise to them is that he will not do the same. Instead, he is going to do what a good shepherd does. He's going to gather and lead the scattered sheep. As Zechariah puts it, I will return my hand toward my little ones. 
And when he is raised like a shepherd, he is going to go before them. It's like he's saying, though you will forsake me this night, I will not forsake you. I will still be your shepherd. And that's when Peter interjects. Oh, Peter. Though they all fall because of you, I will never fall away. The bravado, the brazen confidence of Peter. Uh, Not only does he overestimate his own strength, but he fancies himself that he is stronger than everybody else. Even if they should all fall away, I will never fall away. I am not as susceptible to these temptations, Lord. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now when Jesus says truly in the Gospels, <laughs> when he uses that phrase, amen, that's, that's where we get our word amen, amen, is from the Greek word truly. It's why we end our prayers that way. We agree, we say truly. Jesus begins sentences that way. He says, amen, amen. He says, truly I say to you. When Jesus says truly, we're meant to pay attention, (laughs) right? We are meant to take it seriously. And Peter has enough, heard enough of these truly statements of our Lord to know better. And yet it's, it's like he just can't help himself. Lord, you might have been right every other time. You said truly. Every other time, but not this time. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples chimed in and said the same. There is what what one commentator calls a death-deep devotion. That, That even death itself would not make him deny his Savior. And we're going to see a measure of that death-deep devotion, aren't we? In the very next chapter, as they come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword. He is ready to fight to the death. He is ready to defend Jesus. But he is not ready for Jesus to not defend himself. He's not ready to hear Jesus say, Peter, put your sword back in its place. My kingdom is not of this world. He is not ready to hear, to hear him say, Peter, these things must be so. You see, I think Peter's death-deep devotion is still dependent on Peter's distorted understanding of Jesus' messianic mission and glory. He is still clinging to this mistaken idea that Jesus is going to come and to conquer in an earthly way. He still has it in his head, what he said before, when Jesus told him, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter said, nope. Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. 
Incidentally, that's the last time in the gospel Jesus used this word, scandalon. Peter, you are being a scandalon to me. This is offensive to me. It's a rock of offense because you do not have your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are willing to go out in a blaze of glory as long as that glory meets your expectations. But tonight, as things begin to unfold, as it becomes clear that Jesus is not going to fight back, as it becomes clear that he's not going to let Peter fight back, that he is going to allow himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he is going to give his cheek to those who strike it, he's going to give his back to be whipped, his beard to be torn out, his hands and feet to be pierced. Once it's clear that Jesus is going to be weak, Peter and all the other disciples will begin to second guess what they have thought about Jesus. We had hoped, they say on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped that he might be the one to deliver Israel. And this disillusion of their hopes is going to unravel this night. And so quickly, in the next hours, Before the rooster even has a chance to crow, Peter will have denied Jesus three times. What's maybe most surprising of all here is that Jesus gives them the last word. He doesn't fight them on it. He doesn't contradict them. As Bruner says, the unfolding events will do the contradicting. And that brings us to our next point here to the sorrows of the shepherd. We've considered his striking, consider his sorrows in verses 36 through 38 as Jesus now brings them to Gethsemane into that place where the olives are crushed under the weight of the press. And he instructs his disciples to wait for him while he goes on to pray. But he does bring with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Why the three? And why these three? I don't know exactly, but there are a few interesting things. One, it does seem from the gospel accounts that even within his small group of disciples, there was this smaller group. There were those who were closest to him, those whom he counted his closest friends. And Jesus is about to become incredibly vulnerable with these men. They are about to see a side of their Lord that they have never seen before. They're going to see him ugly cry. Uh, They are going to see him in troubled agony and deep emotional distress. They are going to see their ever-confident leader reduced by anxiety and trouble so that he is sorrowful unto death. And yet he wants them to be there. He wants them to remain with him. He wants them to watch with him. And by watch with him, he means stay awake and pray with me, as will become clear. And though this will be the first time that they have seen this side of Jesus, it will not be the first time that these three have seen a side of their Lord they had never seen before. 
because it was these same three men who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration that are now with him on the Mount of Olives. These same three who saw him in his glory, who saw a side of Christ that no earthly man had seen before, who saw him transfigured before their eyes so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light, talking on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, of which Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it unveiled. These same three who were eyewitnesses of his majesty will now become the eyewitnesses of his agony. That countenance that once shone like the sun will be wrapped in darkness as it falls in sorrow and anguish. There's different, different translations that uh, translators have used to try to capture the meaning of these words. One has in anguish and dismay. Another, he was depressed and agitated. Yet another, grieved and distressed. I think the ESV translation is as good as any of the others, that he was sorrowful and troubled. Together, they convey not only a sense of deep grief and sorrow, but of mental anxiety and emotional distress. When you feel like you are emotionally crushed and mentally crazy. That's what's being conveyed. Is that too much to say of Jesus? That he is emotionally crushed? and mentally crazy, that he feels that way, that the terms are so poignantly human that, in fact, the heretical Arians appealed to this text as proof that Jesus could not be truly and fully God. Because it's so human. It proves nothing of the sort. What it does prove is that the one who is truly and fully God became truly and fully man. Took a whole, complete human nature to himself. Added to himself what he was not. And that as a man, he came to bear our troubles and our sorrows, to partake of our estate of sin and misery, to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. That we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been made in every respect like us, yet without sin. We have one who experienced depression and dejection and discouragement and anxiety and of a hellish sort. Truly, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, The author of Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I think that, as I was reading that this week, it struck me in a new way. Because it says that with loud cries and tears... He prayed to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard, and he was answered, and the answer was no. I will not save you from death. And I think that makes a good transition to our last point here. As we've considered the striking of the shepherd and the sorrow of the shepherd, let's consider the submission of the shepherd. In his sorrows, we find Jesus leaning into his disciples and then into his closest friends, but more than all, he leans into his father. He leaves the eight, and then he leaves the three, and then he goes to the one. To the only one that he can truly bear his soul with, he goes a little further and he falls on his face in this posture of worship and submission, and he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, there's a few things that need to be said about this. First, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? We just read about a cup that he gave to his disciples as he instituted the Lord's Supper, where he said this cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, where he links the cup with his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood to the atonement that he is about to make. But I think that there is a symbolic significance to this cup that lies behind all of that. And it's this, that the cup is an Old Testament way of speaking about suffering under the wrath of God. The Old Testament prophets often spoke about this cup of God's wrath. This cup that he would make Israel to drink, that he would make the nations to drink. Think of Isaiah 51. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or think of Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make the nations to whom I send you drink it. That same symbolism is brought forward into the New Testament as well. Uh, In Revelation 14.10, we read, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented. Uh, The reason that Jesus is sorrowful and troubled is not simply because he is afraid to die. What troubles Jesus' soul is the frightful prospect of drinking this cup of his Father's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Jesus knows full well the just wrath and wages of sin He knows what his people deserve. He knows the prospect of enduring that wrath. And that prospect makes his human will long for another way. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Is it wrong to pray that way? I think it's a question worth asking. Is it wrong to pray for such deliverance? Is it wrong for Jesus to pray that the cross be removed as the way? 
The same Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me. Does this kind of prayer represent a dissatisfaction with God's providence? What is going on here? Is this a failing on the part of Christ? Of course it is not. In fact, the Lord tells us repeatedly in his word that we should pray for such deliverance. David constantly prays for deliverance in the Psalms. Paul prays three times to be delivered from the thorn in his flesh. Uh, the, The act of asking, take this cup from me, is not wrong. In fact, I think it's part of the process of faithfulness as we learn to submit ourselves to the will of God. Remember, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned obedience. He learned to submit himself to the will of God. Uh, There's a big difference between asking God to remove a cross and refusing to submit to his will when he doesn't. But that is never the posture of Jesus. Even as he begins to pray, he is praying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And I think there is an incredibly important lesson here about prayer. And that is that prayer is not about changing God's will. Prayer is not about trying to change God's will. That's the way the idle nations think. That's the way they speak in their magical incantations as they seek to control their gods. Biblical prayer is not about controlling God. It is not about trying to change Him. Biblical prayer is about being conformed to His will. It is about having our will bent and shaped and formed by the will of God. And that's why it's a means of grace to us. Because in prayer, we are confronted not only by the providential circumstances that God brings into our lives, the things that we are praying for, but we are, we are confronted with his character, that he is good and kind and faithful, and that he uses these things to conform us to his likeness. It doesn't make any of the things any easier, right? Nobody likes to suffer. That's why we call it suffering, But in prayer, we are given strength and resolve to endure, to submit ourselves to the will of God, knowing that he's good and faithful and true. In prayer, we come to this place where we can say, Lord, I don't want this for myself. I don't like this for myself. But I trust you. And I love you. And you're good and you're faithful, and you're righteous. And I think that's the sort of thing that is going on here for Christ as he brings his fully human will in submission to the divine will, indeed to his own divine will. I'll spare you the Christological complexities of the orthodox doctrine of the two wills of Christ, uh, only to say that Dr. Godfrey loved to pull young seminarians about whether Jesus had one will or two wills. He, he loved that we almost always proved ourselves to be heretics. Because you just think, he certainly has one will. 
But it's important to uphold the Bible's teaching that Christ has at the same time a fully human will and a fully divine will. And that here he brings his human will in submission to the divine will. And that's important. Because that is a kind of submission that you don't know about. It is a kind of submission that he is doing for us as he submits on our behalf. And and I think that that is nowhere more evident than in the juxtaposition of Jesus pleading and crying out in prayer and the disciples sleeping. As Jesus comes back, he says, couldn't you just stay awake, watch and pray? Could you not watch with me one hour? But it's late. Their bellies are full. They've participated in those four cups of wine. Their hearts are merry and their eyes are heavy. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can, you can hear at the same time both the disappointment in Jesus' voice. Could you not wait with me? Could you not watch with me? Could you not pray? You hear the disappointment, but you also hear, you also hear that he remembers that they are dust. He remembers that they are weak. He knows the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I think there's almost a sense in which Jesus is preaching to his disciples not just what they need to hear, but what he needs to hear for them. That he needs to keep watch for them. That he needs to battle temptation for them. The temptation not to abandon the cross in this hour. He, he needs the willingness of his spirit to his Father's will to win out over fear. And he needs to do it for his disciples. And so he leaves them again. And he goes and he prays. But look how the prayer has changed so subtly. Now he prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He's no longer praying, if possible, let this cup pass. Now he's saying, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The cup must be dealt with. The wrath of God must be poured out. The wages of sin must be carried out. And as he returns to his disciples a third time, he finds them again asleep. I don't, I I feel like I'm just beginning to appreciate this juxtaposition. I don't know all that's going on, but at a minimum, as Jesus came back to his disciples, it must have been such a stark reminder of why the cup was before him. It must have been such like a living parable of their weakness and their indifference in this hour of his greatest need. It it must have struck him so heavily that they can't drink this cup. They can't endure this. They would be consumed. And so without waking them, he goes and he prays the same words yet again. And now as he comes to his disciples and finds them still sleeping, he says, See, 
The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Notice that now after Jesus finishes praying, he gets up, he walks straight to his disciples, and then he walks straight into the hands of the betrayer. The submission is complete. The prayers have not made the road easier, but they have given him strength to endure. In fact, Luke tells us that there appeared to him while he was praying an angel from heaven strengthening him, even as his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The full weight of the press has been heavy on Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But now that he has submitted himself fully to that will, it has produced this pure oil of resolve. And so he gets up with a new determination. You can hear it in his words. Rise. Let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He's putting the cup to his lips. He is ready to drink. He is ready to drink this cup of God's fury to the bitter dregs. Spurgeon said, all hell was distilled into that cup. And so it was. He drinks this cup so that we might never have to drink it. And the thrilling news for us believers is that the cup has passed for us. This cup has passed for us. If it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The Lord's will is done. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But you know what? Isaiah went on to say this, that that will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. The will of the Lord is done. Christ drinks the cup, and that cup passed. It passed because it was emptied in its entirety into the soul of our Savior. But that doesn't mean that all cups have passed. Because we receive another cup. We receive the cup of salvation the cup of the blood of the covenant given for the forgiveness of sins, the cup which Paul calls the cup of blessing that we bless. We're about to drink this cup. And we're about to sing a hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to proclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior indeed. A Savior who drinks the cup of wrath and curse so that he might put into the hands of helpless, overconfident, slumbering sinners a cup of blessing and say, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many of you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it. Before we drink of it, let's pray and thank the Lord for his word. Oh Lord, our God, we do thank you that you have uh, endured such agony and torments of soul, that you were 
crushed under the press of our sins and the weight of the wrath of your Father in order that this cup might pass from us and that you might put into our hands a cup of blessing and salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that today as we partake of the supper, we would drink deeply of that cup. And, Lord, that you would convict us, that we might not be overconfident, that we might not uh, think uh, too highly of ourselves, but that we might think highly of our Savior, that we might think highly of his faithfulness and his righteousness and his goodness in our place. And so live before you in gratitude. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we get to come to this meal, this family meal, where the Lord reminds us of his great grace to us and where he encourages our hearts and our souls and he puts a cup into our weak hands and he says, take and drink. Uh, This meal is a meal for sinners. Uh, And if you are coming in humility today, if you, if you come as one who knows that you are a sinner, but that you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you should come and you should find strength and encouragement and grace at this table. Uh, but this meal is not for those who are hypocrites or for those who are seeking to stand in their own strength or for those who know that they do not belong to Christ. This meal is a meal that the church partakes of together. And so if you're a baptized, professing member of a church where the gospel's faithfully being preached, if you're a member there in good standing, and if you're walking in faith and in repentance, then you are welcome to come and to join us. But if those things are not true of you, let me just encourage you to let these elements pass today. Uh, And yet I would also say, don't let Christ pass. Uh, he is here to be received in faith. Uh, let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements then and set them apart for this holy use. Uh, Lord, as we come to your table today, we know that we in and of ourselves do, do not belong here, that we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs from under your table, and yet you invite us. Uh, you don't call us to come and to gather up crumbs. Uh, you call us as, as sons and daughters to sit at your table with you and to commune with you, uh, and to receive this assurance of of faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, now uh, take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and use them for this holy purpose, uh, and that you would help us to receive them in faith and so receive Christ himself and all of his benefits for our salvation. For we say it in his name. Amen.